Thank you to, to Christoph for leading us uh, so far this evening and for the musicians as they've helped us in our, in our worship. Before we, we turn to God's word, let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that we've just sung about, for all that it means to us and all that it brings to us. We thank you, Father, that it is your living word that speaks to us into our lives today. Father, we pray for us this evening as we handle these difficult passages written a long time ago in a very different context and culture. We pray, Father, that you would bring them alive to us uh, today in our situation. May your Holy Spirit be with us in our service this evening. Amen. Now, it would be helpful if you could keep your Bibles open at the, the passage that Christoph read to us uh, earlier. That's on page 78. Uh, if you're using the, the Bibles in the pew, you'd be pleased to know that we're not going to, to slavishly follow it verse by verse, but from time to time we'll refer to it, and it would be helpful if you could, could keep your Bibles open. Recently, a, a film was released, The Iron Lady. The film tells the story, something of the life of Margaret Thatcher, the controversial British Prime Minister of the 1980s. Maybe some of you have seen it. And I suppose it won't be long before a similar film is made on the life of Tony Blair, again, a controversial and long-serving Prime Minister. Now, I suspect if, if such a film uh, is produced, It'll feature one of Blair's many famous soundbites. I'm sure you'll remember those, those short, pithy statements that he made designed to capture the essence of something, but without having to descend into the detail. I, I think my favorite Blair soundbite was the ironic one that he made when he came to Northern Ireland as part of the, the peace process. You may well remember it. The, the irony wasn't lost on the journalists who heard it that day. Blair said, A day like this is not a day for sound bites, but I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. Many of the commentators had a lot of fun with Blair uh, over those remarks. But big general statements of principle can be of great value, and often they're necessary. But usually if they're divorced from the detailed outworking of whatever it is they're dealing with, they leave far too much to individual interpretation to really be of any use. Now in our studies in the, the book of Exodus so far, to some extent we've had the sound bites, those big general statements of principle, setting out some of the fundamentals. But the detail has been kept for another time. I'm thinking of the, the Ten Commandments that we looked at previously. You might remember them from, from childhood, those short statements setting out in very short form the very basics of how God wishes to see his people live in relation to him and in relation to each other. But tonight we're going to, to move away from those general principles, those broad headlines, and we're going to descend into some of the detail. We're going to see how God envisaged the outworking of those principles in the everyday lives of some of his people about three and a half thousand years ago. And we're going to ask ourselves, what, if anything, we can learn for our lives today in the 21st century in a very different social, 
economic and political context. Before we do so, let's remind ourselves of the story so far. Now, it's important that we do that because all of Scripture, but particularly the Old Testament, is a story. A story of how God interacted with his people. We only properly understand the text that is before us when we understand the context in which it's written. So where has our story taken us so far? Well, Christoph's touched on this a little already this evening. You remember after Jacob and his family had made their home in Egypt, the family multiplied there. But as they grew, they found themselves moving from a position of prominence into one of slavery. They eventually escaped from Egypt as God miraculously rescued them. And at this point in our story, we find this group of people at that stage, probably around about two and a half million of them, journeying slowly through the desert lands of the Sinai Peninsula as they made their way, led by God, back to the promised land of Cana. Now, as they find themselves at the foothills of Mount Sinai, God speaks to them. And as we've seen previously, he sets out how he wishes this group of people now to live, this rescued group of people how he would like them now to behave. As we've talked about already, he does so in two parts. Big general statements of principle, and tonight comes the detail. This detail is what's written in what's called the Book of the Covenant. It's really a book within a book, setting out, as we've said, a lot of the detail. Tonight we're going to look at, at some of these matters of detail. We're going to look at matters of employment, we're going to look at what happens when personal injuries are sustained and finally when property is interfered with. There are lots of other topics, but we'll keep those for the weeks ahead. We've looked a little bit about the, the historical background to where we find ourselves tonight. I think it's also important we remind ourselves, just as we did last week, of the theological background. Where is God and in relation to his people at this time? You might remember what we, we thought about last week, that how God interacts with his people is always the same, whether in Old Testament times or later. God acts first, not in response to anything people do, but out of unconditional love that he has. For the people in tonight's story, he provided a means of freeing them from their slavery. For us born at a later time, God provides for us a means of freeing us from the slavery that we are born into, the slavery of sin. It's an unconditional love initiated by him, demanding nothing from us except acceptance of it. God was then, just as he is now, a God of grace. Well, then you might ask, well, What's the purpose of all this law, all these rules and regulations that we've, we've read about tonight um, in the, the Old Testament? Well, they're there to show how God expected the people that he had, past tense, saved, to live in a thankful response to him for what he'd done. Now, tonight, in our very different times, God has provided in Jesus a means to save us. And for those of us who've accepted that, he expects us to live similarly lives 
of grateful response in the way that he intended people to live. So with all of this in mind, knowing the the purpose of Old Testament law, we can now have a look at the, the text before us tonight that Christoph read. Knowing what it's there for, it's there to show us how God expects his saved people to live. And we need to ask ourselves, what relevance, if any, might the instructions that God gave to his people at that time have to us today? I suppose before we we look at those specifics, perhaps we should ask one more fundamental question. How do we carry out such an exercise? How do we take detailed rules and regulations given in a hugely different context and explore their relevance to us today? Well, let me suggest that the following way we might uh, approach such a task We should read Old Testament law, Old Testament rules and regulations, first by determining their objective, preserving this, and then asking, how might that objective be applied in our present-day context? We take the Old Testament rules and regulations, we determine their objective, and then we ask, how does that objective work itself out in our context today? In short, we need to avoid two extremes with Old Testament law. We can't slavishly apply what we read there word for word to our present day context. But equally, we must avoid dispensing entirely with it. Well, let's let's now get into the detail. Let's have a look at what these rules and regulations are. Tonight we've looked at at three, as I said earlier, three broad categories. And we're going to to take a few minutes and just look at each category. We've seen about rules in the sphere of employment. You see that in chapter 21, the first 11 verses. We've looked at the consequences that occur when personal injuries are caused to somebody. You see that in the, the last set of verses in chapter 21. And then we're going to look at rules about property. And you'll see those in the opening 15 verses of chapter 22. Well, turning first then to those rules uh, about uh, work that you find in chapter 21. Now, if you're using the Bible in the the pew, it probably hasn't escaped your notice that in fact the heading inserted over these verses doesn't immediately direct your, your thoughts to work as we would understand it in today's context but rather it's to the notion of, of servanthood or, or perhaps even in some translations to slavery. Now, as watchers of of Downton Abbey will know, the type of servanthood that might have been seen in in former days isn't something that we see today in our society. However, simply to dismiss verses like this as an irrelevance would be a mistake. Chris Wright, in his book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, suggests that servants in Israelite society at that time were more akin to, to bonded workers They were obliged to serve their employer, but working alongside their employer and his household, and not as we might imagine a servant working in substitution for them. So then, seen in this light, what is termed in the translation before us as servanthood might in fact be seen as something little different from many kinds of of paid employment that we'd find today in our cash-based economy. 
Well, remembering now how we, we discussed earlier how we should analyze Old Testament law by establishing the objective and then translating it into a contemporary culture, what objectives might we find in the passage before us tonight that would speak to us into present employment situations that we might find? Well, let me suggest the overriding objective that you can distill from, from this passage, and that is that protection must be offered to those who are vulnerable to exploitation in their employment. Protection must be offered to those who are vulnerable to exploitation in their employment. Scan your eye over verses 2 to 11 of chapter 21. You'll see there God demanding that in the employment context, those in the powerful position of the employer must abide by certain terms and conditions which may not always serve his self-interest but rather they're there for the protection of the weaker party. Thus you'll see, have a look at at verse 2, you'll see there that if you acquired a, a servant you had to let him go after six years and you couldn't retain him any longer than that if you wished to. In verse 5, but if the servant wanted to remain with you, the master can't even uh, let him go if he would prefer to, to dispense with him. Now, the objective of those rules is clear. Those in your employment must have the terms of their employment properly laid out and established and respected and not subject to the arbitrary whim of the employer. Well, how might those objectives taken in Old Testament times be translated into our present context? As we talked about earlier, we, of course, don't live in a, in a culture, an employment culture like that. We live in a, in a cash-based economy, which encompasses the, the direct employment of people. Nevertheless, the concern that those, um, nevertheless, the concern that those in the employee's position need protection from exploitation remains every bit as much in Old Testament times. Of course, today we read of situations where those in employment suffer dreadful exploitation, both here in this country and further afield. I don't know if any of you saw the the dispatches program shown in Channel 4 in in 2010 that highlighted the problem here in the UK uh, faced by many domestic workers, particularly those who work here having come from abroad. Many face physical, sexual or psychological abuse by their employers here in this country. Let me remind you, if you you, you saw it, of the the story of Patience. She was a a domestic worker from the West Africa whose former boss was a London professional. She says that for almost three years she worked for 120 hours a week for little money. You hear her own words. I was treated like a slave not allowed to go out, to make friends. She'd pinch me, she'd slap me. I didn't have anyone to talk to. A neighbour helped patients escape, but then she says the police didn't believe her. She finally won her case in an employment tribunal and took action against the police who reopened the investigation. And eventually her employer was convicted of assault. Those godly, long-established objectives of providing protection to those in employment remain every bit as important today as they did in the times of the society that we've read of this evening. 
Now, we've a lot to be thankful for in our society for the, the myriad of laws that offer uh, protection to workers at risk of exploitation. But we mustn't be satisfied with where we are. We must look to see, well, what more can be done? We, have to, we should support our, our political leaders as they seek to bring forward new laws that offer protection um, and for those who work in the enforcement of those laws. And we should be particularly supportive of Christian groups who seek to bring a Christian and a godly perspective uh, to that field. Let's have a look at our, our second area tonight, our second block of rules and regulations, rules about causing personal injuries. You'll find that in chapter 21, verses 12 through to, to 36. And what you find there as you read it is a, a compensation scheme, essentially, when personal injuries are suffered. Now, the structure is relatively easy to follow when you break it down. Essentially, what you find there is that A causes an injury to B, and as a result, some detrimental consequence must be suffered to A. Let's have a look at a couple of examples to see how that works itself out. Look at verse 12. You'll see there that if A kills B, A is put to death. Or have a look at verse 26. In this case, A, he's a, an employer, hits B, the employee, and causes certain injury. The consequence that falls on A, well, A must release B from any obligation to do any further work for him. Well, again, bearing in mind the, the structure that we've, we've thought we're going to, to use for looking at analyzing these rules and regulations, determining the objective, and then translating it into its context, what objectives might we find uh, in these, this block of laws? Well, let me suggest three. Firstly, God demands accountability for wrongful actions. God's sense of, of justice and fairness Make this a fundamental requirement amongst any people who wish to live in his ways. I wonder today, do we find this sense of justice in our context? Now again, we have much to be thankful for in our democratic society with its sophisticated political and legal system based largely on that Judeo-Christian heritage that we've, um, that we've inherited We've striven to achieve a society that is broadly based on justice and fairness. But of course, there are examples that are highlighted from time to time in the media to show that our system continues to have its, its imperfections and its loopholes. And again, we should be supportive of those who campaign to see improvements in it. Particularly, we should be supportive of those Christian groups who seek to advocate in that field. Of course, we need to remember that not everyone in this world has the privileges of living in the, the democratic society uh, that we live in, where basic human fundamental rights are protected. And again, we should support and encourage, and I know many in this church do, those groups who work further afield in seeking to see those God-given rights uh, upheld. It's our first objective that God demands accountability for wrongful actions. Second objective in this set of passages. Secondly, we see that while God not only permits, but rather requires that certain detrimental consequences would flow on those who cause injury to others, 
he seeks to do so in a way that curtails the human propensity that each one of us has that may seek to extract undue vengeance when injury is suffered. In short, God permits vengeance, but he seeks to limit it. You'll see this best expressed if you you cast your eye down to verses 23 and 24, where you'll find there the well-known but often misused verses about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These verses are often used to, to bolster a claim that a penalty, usually a criminal one, is inadequate and really a more severe penalty is what's called for. Now, on certain occasions, such a claim may well be justified, but that's not the principle that underlies this verse. This verse isn't a call to greater retribution, but rather it seeks to impose a limit on it. When a wrong is done, the punishment that's bestowed must be proportionate to the offence, neither too lenient nor too severe. And again, we should be supportive of those in our society and prayerful for them who seek, whose task it is to seek to dispense punishment, that they would do so in a God-honoring and a proportionate way. And finally, in this group of, of, of laws, let's look at our, our third objective. You'll note the words to children that are expressed. You'll see them in verses 15 and in verses, and verse 17 about their relationship to their parents. Now, we must bear in mind what we we thought about earlier, that these verses, these blocks of laws, are the outworkings, the detail, of those broad statements of principle found earlier in the Ten Commandments. You'll remember there how God told his people that they must honour their parents. And here in these verses tonight, we see the importance that God attached in that very different social context, in the severity of the punishments that were to be dispensed if this principle wasn't upheld. Now here we see a a very clear example of where we should not today slavishly follow those Old Testament laws. In fact, to do so would, of course, be a a criminal offence. But again, simply to dispense with them would be a, a mistake we have to distill what the objective behind them was. And it's a simple one. It's the one that's found in the Ten Commandments, that honor and respect would be given to parents. One observation that I would make in relation to our society today is that this is something that's not often seen. In fact, quite often, the reverse seems to have occurred. Now, perhaps that's explained by a a reaction to the unhealthy Victorian notion where minor children should be seen and not heard. However, there's a danger. The danger is allowing the pendulum to swing too far the other way, where minor children who naturally lack the life experience and the emotional maturity of their parents are often deprived of good parental guidance and admonishment. And to parent in that way is to do a disservice to our children. We should seek to support parents who try to bring up their children in a good and a God-honoring way. Now, some of you here may have attended one of the streams in our Faith Academy series uh, that ran last year, where uh, there they were trying to teach 
uh, and to encourage parents of minor children to parent in a God-honouring way. We hope to to do more of that here in Kirkpatrick uh, over the next number of months. But for now, pray for those folks who are parents of minor children that they would parent in a a God-honouring way. Of course, minor children don't remain so for for any more than a maximum of, of 18 years, and soon they're no longer what we would call dependent. Interestingly, we then call them independent, meaning they've, they've cut their ties with their parents. Now, to mature and to develop uh, into a, a different relationship with your parents in adulthood is something that's quite natural and quite correct. Some of you might remember the, the 1980s comedy, Sorry, starring Ronnie Corbett. You might remember he was the, the 41-year-old librarian who remained under the charge of his domineering mother. If you remember the, the program, it just wasn't a healthy way for him to live. Yet the idea that on leaving our minority, whatever degree of, of deference we accorded to our parents previously, that that no longer apply, applies, finds no support in the Bible. Throughout our lives, whether we're under 18 or over it, we should continue to honour and respect our parents all of their lives. And finally, let's turn to the the third block of laws. Those laws about property, rules and regulations that affect property. You'll find those there in the opening 15 verses of chapter 22. Now you'll see there, there are lots of detailed instructions If A happens to to your property, then a consequence is usually required from the person who's caused the loss or destruction of it. Now, much of of what we've talked about earlier in relation to personal injuries uh, applies here as to how we should analyse the systems that prevail in our country today and elsewhere and ask where those uh, rights are not being protected, how might they properly be? But let me draw one fundamental contrast between this set of verses and those verses on personal injury which preceded it. Look at the actions that are required here from the wrongdoer. There's a complete absence of punishment by death. You'll remember when we looked at the the verses in relation to personal injury, often many of the the offences, the things that occurred, the punishment was one of death. You'll not find that here in tonight's verses in relation to personal injury. I think that helps us to recall one of the underlying themes of Israelite life in those days as God had ordained it. Namely the priority that he accorded to life over property. There was no property offence in normal legal Israelite procedure that was punishable by death. As the old saying goes, people matter more than things. And I think that brings us to a a challenge uh, for us today, both individually and as a broader society, as to in our lives and in our culture, which matters more. For some time now I've been trying to to grapple with reading Dermot uh, McCullough's History of Christianity. And when one reflects in reading that on the history of the church, Far too often one finds there examples of the church being far more concerned with its buildings and its structures and not with the society around it, with the people who desperately needed all that the church had to offer. 
as we each reflect on our lives individually, and we thought a little bit about this in our time this morning, we reflect on our lives individually and corporately as a church, may it never be said of us that things mattered more than people. May people always come first. Well, our our time together tonight in this difficult passage is almost gone. As we've had a, a look at some of these detailed Old Testament laws, these rules and regulations, I trust in doing so that you'll not be tempted to say, these things, these things don't have anything to say to us anymore. Because these laws of, of social justice are very much grounded in God's character, and God's character never changes. His is a character that demands care for those who are in vulnerable positions of employment. It demands justice for people who are harmed and protection for property that's damaged. But it limits retribution only to what is fair and right. There's probably something in in each one of us that rebels against the idea of our lives being governed by anything and even been governed by God's laws. We often prefer what we might categorize as, as freedom. However, if you take that view of God's law, you miss out on the great opportunity that it provides for each one of us to live a fulfilled life as our maker intended. The law shows us that God cares about our every need, right down to the very detail of our lives. Let's remember that that God is a good God, and the law is nothing for us to fear. Rather, it's the complete opposite. It's a cause for celebration. I trust tonight, as we've read these laws and as we've reflected on them, that we can say, just as the psalmist said long ago, Oh, how I love your law, because it speaks to us of God's love and his concern for us. Amen.